Do you love what you hear on the podcast? Please just go to buy a cup of coffee. The Radio Horror link is in the show notes or it's on top of the Twitter page. Or you can just go to buymeacupofcoffee.com backslash Radio Horror. And you can help support the other podcast here on the Radio Horror Network. Donations go towards cloud service and new equipment. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dead TV Podcast, podcast dedicated to all the canceled TV shows in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. And tonight we are talking about Choir of Angels, episode 13 of War of the Worlds. I should probably say what show we're still covering, in case this is your first episode. We're covering War of the Worlds, a 1980s television show uh, sequel to the 1950s movie. Yes, yes, yes. War of the Worlds, season 1, episode 13, Choirs of Angels. A noted scientist and old friend of Suzanne's, Dr. Eric Von Deer, is being brainwashed through signals subliminally implanted in the music of his favorite artist into secretly working on a serum that will give the aliens immunity to Earth's bacteria. Suzanne arrives for a weekend visit while Von Deer is on the verge of the serum's completion. What's funny is, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, the journal that I'm writing in right now is a Star Trek First Contact uh, journal that you you can write in. And what was the premise of Star Trek First Contact? First Contact? Yes. Oh, okay, you're making a joke. Yes. It, for yeah, anyone no, not familiar for anyone not familiar with Star Trek First Contact, and this is relevant to War of the Worlds, why? What studio makes Star Trek and War of the Worlds? Paramount. And Star Trek the Next and Star Trek the Next Generation was running in syndication alongside War of the Worlds. And First Contact is the second of the Next Generation movies. Wonderful. I love it. <laughs> yes. All these connections. And we've obviously have mentioned a lot of people from War of the Worlds and Friday the thirteenth obviously went right across the other to the other side of the studio lot to go work on the next generation. It was a big, you know, we we've talked about the history about why Next Generation, Friday the thirteenth, and War of the Worlds got a series. Alien Record Company. <laughs> That's yes. the first note. They're singing a little duet do do subliminal messages. They should be like snapping their fingers while they're recording this, right? Believe in us. Believe in us. Yeah, oh my god. I cannot believe this is the plot line they went with. So these three aliens are putting subliminal messages into a musician a musician's music after they uh, kind of take over there is uh, let's see who do we got here what, what was the name of the musician the musician is Billy Thorpe the same person that actually did our opening credits unfortunately he's passed you know 2007 he was also the makers of the soundtrack for the Fargo series Rage Dirty Deeds uh, Molly the, the miniseries was his last one and this is the only thing that he has an actor credit for the uh, three aliens uh, that appear throughout the entire episode are John Novak, Alex Carter, and Heidi Von Polensky. They're pretty much character actors of note. Uh, John had been on uh, Stargate as Colonel William Ronson, and he was in War and Legends of the Fall. The other two were in a lot of stuff that I never really watched other than the uh, Alex was in The Island, but I couldn't pick out who the hell he played, and Heidi was in stuff I've never seen before. So pretty much all bit part character actors. Um, 
Star Hunter was a TV series that she was on. But uh, they are our three main new alien characters that last through the entire episode and then eventually die. Uh, I think it's funny uh, to see cassette tapes in anything, considering everything is now just plug-and-play into your phone or little dig- digital device. Magic of the 80s. Correct. It's just also the first time we see a human ally of the aliens, who they obviously feed some sob story to about how they're so put upon, and he wants to help them. So he thinks they're like E.T. or Alf, not like the aliens that we know them to be. <laughs> yes, and this music is so persuasive that even Harrison gets enthralled with it. Yes. The high command do not understand why they don't just take over the body of the doctor, and the aliens explain in doing so they will lose all of the knowledge inside the doctor's head because they don't seem to absorb the memories of people and then sometimes they do. Maybe it's a matter of who wrote the script that week. Do you think so? You know, they have had proof where they've taken over the body and then known the codes to get into things. You know, there's proof that they do remember some of the information that's in the brain that they're taking over. I just think it changes depending on who the writer of the episode was, and he didn't pay attention to the previous one. Possibly. Um, the director of the episode, by the way, has worked on 27 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh-huh. And he was also the associate producer alongside Rod Sterling for Night Gallery. Love that show. Mm, definitely. Uh, I think they tried to bring it back at one point, but that didn't happen. He also directed an episode of War of the one other episode of War of the Worlds, The Angel of Death. I don't think we've covered that episode yet. No, I don't think so. The message in the music reminds you of what controversial album, possibly? It's on the tip of my tongue, Mr. Zeneca. Throughout history, the White, album? the White Album, I believe you're correct, but I also think Jethro Tull was also brought before court. I might be wrong, but there was a famous rock musician band whose record was put on display in the courtroom while they were in court with their lawyers and spun backwards to prove that the lyrics had the music of Lucifer El Diablo. And guess what happened to the prosecution? What? They were made to look like complete and utter fucking morons, just like O.J. Simpson, the O.J. Simpson trial when O.J. tried on the glove. Well, that's like any court case talking about, you know, violence and music will lead people to make, do violence. Right. You know? And the band, the judge pretty much declared it like, you're done. <laughs> like, yeah. this is, <laughs> this is. You're, you're, Mr. Prosecution, you're, you are, Mr. Prosecutor, you're done. And the band went running out of the courtroom, jumping, uh, like over the, uh, you know, the steps flying, you know, there's a, you can watch it on YouTube, the band, like, jumping on the courtroom sets, like, up and down, like, you know, pumping their fists in the air, like they won, and they were 100% right, and this is all complete bullcrap, and, you know what I mean? They're, they. You don't have to look for, to music to find Satan. Satan is within all of us. Yes, it's That's just Nacious Disa. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I absolutely love that image of them doing that because it, again, they're 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 in every right to be cheering and and just you know acting like the way they are because of what they were just dragged through for nothing. Yeah. Um, but in this case, yes, there is music that is causing Harrison and the Doctor to act really crazy, you know, and... Uh, and apparently it stimulates the addictive centers of the brain, the serotonin production. So they are physically addicted to listening to the music. They are all, it's the pleasure centers of the brain, they say, too, right? Yeah, mm. yeah. Serotonin uptake centers, and yeah, it's, they were completely addicted to the music. The music is like drugs. 
Yeah, exactly. Or like their crystal, like the alien's crystal that uh, Suzanne and Harrison uh, took pleasure in before. And Susan uh, is working at the lab, and she finds the alien spinal fluid, which looks like orange juice. <laughs> I thought that was the brain essence that they harvested from all those human brains in that one episode. No, apparently it's the um, it's ah. spinal fluid of the aliens, which you thought would be green, considering when they turn into jelly, they get all greeny. Um, when the doctor is killed, the alien puts his frickin' finger right through the guy's cheek. Ah! Oh! That would have scared the crap out of me watching that as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Ugh! Absolutely terrifying, the way the aliens are in this in this episode when they kill the doctor. But Suzanne finds that the vaccine has already been finished, and she tampers with it. You're right, and they aren't going to be able to figure out if it's the vaccine or if it's chicken soup, as she calls it. <laughs> Harrison and acts that's... like he is hungover, too. Oh, yeah. You know, they're withdrawing from the influence of the music. Suzanne, in this episode, does a very common uh, tactic for avoiding uh, death and, and for self-preservation. That is, going along with your uh, offender. You know, th she was being grabbed by the doctor, and so she turns that 180, like... Yes, I'm helping you. Let's do this together. And then like goes along with it just to the point where she can actually escape. And she does this tactic twice in this episode, and it's super common. Like this is the most common tactic that women use to get out of a situation safely because if they believe that they're in physical danger, then they're more likely to do whatever they can in order to eventually get out of that situation. And she did it brilliantly. Why aren't they coming up with solutions on how to make a vaccine for themselves so the aliens can't try and take over their bodies? So if the aliens come in contact with them, they realize there's something wrong with these human hosts and these are not people they should possess. That's something I don't know will come up, but it's something you think they should be working on. Um, did you hear about in the news recently about a pharmacist who didn't believe that the coronavirus vaccine was viable enough so he destroyed all of the all of the uh, vaccinations that were sent to his um, yeah. pharmacy. Yeah, I, I heard about it. It's like loss of 500 doses. Yep. It's very sad. Was he working with the aliens? Yes, he was possibly working with the aliens, which wouldn't make any sense considering we have a <laughs> we have a virus on the planet that the human race can't even combat. I, I doubt <laughs> aliens from outer space who have never been here before would be able to combat unless the aliens created the, vac the coronavirus themselves. Because they were in don't, league don't. with the Chinese. No, I'm kidding. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> so Norton comes up with a virus for the alien computers. So that's where they come up with the joke comes into that they're not going to be able to figure out if it's chicken soup or if it's the vaccine that they need so they can walk among us. Um, throughout the episode, you can see that the aliens' hosts are slowly deteriorating. Uh, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're getting moldy. And then the high command at the end of the episode allows the aliens to be the, the three, the three record producers, to be the first ones to receive the vaccine. And then they die nastily, like gross, like something out of a gore, uh, gore zone. Did you ever read that magazine or, or? Um, uh, uh, or um, Fangoria. Fangoria would also yes. put very horrific images on their cover. Yes. Yes. Love those. The special effects in this makeup, sh uh, special effects makeup in this episode should get a accommodation. Um, let's see who did the special effects in this episode. 
I got a bunch of windows I had to close. Um, did uh, and um, what did choir of angels mean? That's something from the Bible. I mean, yes, I have some information on that. Oh, by the way, so, so the, the makeup qu- artist is Jane Mead and Jaxus Fortier. Awesome, excellent job. So the choir of angels, as this episode is aptly named, the choirs of angels are in sets of three. So the angels are organized in some sort of hierarchy, uh, and those are called choirs. There's three, arc- there's three of the top hierarchies, which are called spheres, and each sphere contains three orders or choirs. So the first sphere are the servants of God, and those are the, the angels that directly serve God. Those are the seraphim, the cherubim, or the ophanim, or thrones, as they're sometimes called. The second sphere are the angels that guide and rule the spirits and create order in the universe. Those are the lordships, the virtues, and the authorities. The third sphere are the angels that work with humans. And so those would be called the principalities, the archangels, and the angels. So any sort of guardian angel, a subsect of the angel class. So... They are related to this episode simply because they're all in sets of three, just like the aliens work. Mm. So there's actually some varied numbers as to how many choirs of angels there are through time. It's changed a bit. It's been as low as seven and as high as 11. So those two extra ones that get thrown in there sometimes are the eons and the hosts. So That's a little bit of angel knowledge for you. One of the uh, people um, that I mentioned that was the makeup artist, uh, Jane, actually, who worked on the Umbrella Academy um, recently, uh, was involved with a made-for-TV movie in 2016, which I really want to find. It's called, just entitled, Transylvania. In 1880, a young woman in search of her missing father travels to Transylvania, where she teams up with a wrongfully disgraced Scotland Yard detective, and together they witness the birth of the most famous monsters and villains in history. Where is this and how can I watch it? Because it sounds fun. Oh, it's an unsold pilot that was filmed in Toronto. That's why. Okay. <laughs> uh, you go further down IMDb, you get the answers you're looking for. That's all the notes I have here for this episode of the Dead TV Podcast. And we'll take a quick break with some uh, commercial spots and Mr. Zeneca's chit-chat about what? Well, we're talking more about angels. All right. Yeah. So angels like uh, Castiel from Supernatural? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get to it in my focus area. Okay, sounds fantastic. We will be back with the Dead TV Podcast. Speaking of angels, today's focus area is on H.G. Wells' novel entitled The Wonderful Visit. It's the story of an angel accidentally falling out of his heavenly dimension, is shot accidentally, and spends a week recovering in London with the person who shot him, a vicar, Reverend K. Hillier. The book was inspired by prominent art critic, author, and philosopher John Ruskin, when he said that an angel appearing on Earth would be shot on sight, H.G. Wells took the idea and ran with it. Here's a couple minutes of audiobook of that fateful gunfire and the description of the angel. Then suddenly rose something full of wavering colors, 20 yards or less in front of his face, and beating the air. In another moment it had fluttered above the bracken and spread its pinions wide. He saw what it was. His heart was in his mouth, and he fired out of pure surprise and habit. There was a scream of superhuman agony. 
the wings beat the air twice, and the victim came slanting swiftly downward and struck the ground, a struggling heap of writhing body, broken wing, and flying blood-stained plumes upon the turfy slope behind. The vicar stood aghast with his smoking gun in his hand. It was no bird at all, but a youth with an extremely beautiful face, clad in a robe of saffron and with iridescent wings, across whose pinions great waves of colour, flushes of purple and crimson, golden green and intense blue, pursued one another as he writhed in his agony. Never had the vicar seen such gorgeous floods of colour, not stained glass windows, nor the wings of butterflies, not even the glories of crystals seen between prisms, no colours on earth could compare with them. Twice the angel raised himself, only to fall over sideways again. Then the beating of the wings diminished, the terrified face grew pale, the floods of colour abated, and suddenly, with a sob, he lay prone, and the changing hues of the broken wings faded swiftly into one uniform dull grey hue. This isn't the angel of religion or popular belief, but rather the angel of Italian art. Where the angel lives is a place where mythological creatures roam. There is no death, no birth, no hunger, no pain. There's glittery seas in the skies and the stars at their feet. No solar system. The laws of geometry are different. Space is curved. It is noted that all of their land is called the land of dreaming, and our earthly domain shows up in their dreams. So ours, too, is called the land of dreaming to the angelic inhabitants. The Wonderful Visit was published in the same year as The Time Machine, 1895. At this point in H.G.'s life, he was writing 7,000 words per day. That is an incredible amount of words. By comparison, Hemingway wrote about 500 to 1,000 words per day, and Stephen King wrote about 2,000 words per day at his greatest. Most writers only do about 1,000 words per day. The book explores how the Victorian culture, with its staunch social rules and constructs, are at odds with heavenly happiness. As he was writing this book, he had just left a marriage and was on the cusp of another. He felt like a stranger in a life that was ever-changing, with rules too constricting for him. The book is a satire, a parody of Victorian culture. For the entirety of the book, the vicar tries to convince everyone that this is a true angel, but no one believes him. When the angel plays the violin and supernaturally beautiful music comes out, they still aren't convinced. Instead, they insult him for not being able to read sheet music. During the course of a week, the angel starts becoming more human. New feelings like self-consciousness, hunger, pain, outrage, humiliation, and torment. Here's that audiobook again. Listen as the angel expresses his frustration and despair. Truly this is no world for an angel, said the angel. It is a world of war, a world of pain, a world of death. Anger comes upon one. I, who knew not pain and anger, stand here with bloodstains on my hands. I have fallen. To come into this world is to fall. One must hunger and thirst 
and be tormented with a thousand desires. One must fight for foothold, be angry and strike. He lifted up his hands to heaven, the ultimate bitterness of helpless remorse in his face, and then flung them down with a gesture of despair. The only thing that reflected heaven back to him was in the face of a servant girl, and the vicar never explained the concept of servants, and so the angel loved her. The ending of the book is sad. The servant girl runs into a burning building to save the angel's violin, and in turn the angel saves them both, because as the fire swept upward into the roof of the vicar's house, the door to the angelic realms opened up, and through that selfless act, the angel was able to save both of them from this earthly domain. If you've enjoyed the snippets you've heard here, listen to the full thing on LibriVox.org, public domain recordings. Good night. Dorgan Ramen is a restaurant in Ashland, Massachusetts. Serves traditional and authentic Japanese ramen, Thai noodle soups, and the best chicken wings in Metro West. Everything done in-house from scratch, and they use only the highest quality products from small farms. Co-chef owners, Papanook and Alan McIntosh, combine their culinary skills with traditional Japanese cuisine to create an authentic, amazing flavor in every dish. Located at 1 West Union Street on Ashland, Massachusetts, their phone number is 508 309-3416 or they can be located on Facebook at Dorgan Ramen Ashland and on their website as well www.dorganramen.com And we're back with the next episode of the Dead TV Podcast coverage of War of the Worlds War of the Worlds, Season 1 Episode 14, Dust to Dust Originally aired January 23rd, 1989. Many centuries ago, one alien ship crashed on Earth. The surviving aliens were defeated by a local Indian tribe. The modern-day aliens attempt to acquire the ship to assist their subjugation of the planet. And this episode, we get into a little bit of Iron Horse's backstory, which is uh, very nice. And we also get, uh, I guess, three, four kind of uh, act characters in it. Um, We get... Uh, and it seems like they also did a good job of actually casting uh, Native American actors to play these Native American parts. Um, one of them is Ivan Nar- Naranjo. He plays Joseph. Um, I think I think it's pronounced Naranjo. Naranjo. Um, he was also in Kung Fu and Mission Impossible. Um, can't imagine what his uh, typical kind of character was he played in those. Can you, Mr. Zeneca? What was that? Did you hear anything I just said? It kind of cut out there. Uh. So we'll have to edit. Can you take a guess of what type of character he constantly kept playing up until he passed away? I mean, Native American people? Yes. But like I just like the always like the wise men, the shaman, the 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 Indian chief, the Navajo chief, the Cherokee chief, a standing bear, things like that. Well, he has a very like bass voice, a very a very present voice, and so I can understand how that kind of exudes authority. Right, and that's okay. I mean, if that's what you want to play, and that's who you play in a lot of movies, it's, it's going to keep getting your work up until you pass away, which is great, you know. 
Um, he gets to embrace his Native American heritage in, in on-screen performances that are done justly and correct, you know? Um, I think the X-Files, a lot of people praise those episodes uh, that did a good job with that, with the Native, Native American Codebreakers. Um, mm-hmm. That had the uh, the information about the um, the secret tape that had alien crap on it that the cigarette smoking man wanted, um, and uh, he was uh, his son's character. The character, the actor who played his son in this episode was in like Tom and Huck. Uh, he was in Joe and that. He was in The Last of Mohicans. Um, he was on Supernatural for an episode, which I remember. He was Sergeant Sarge Joe Phillips. Um, so he was like the Native American to the ghost that Sam and Dean were hunting in that episode. Um, but uh, and then there was the female of the uh, the daughter. Uh, what was her? What was the daughter's name? Robin Ray? Sewell. Robin Sewell. Uh, as played as played uh, the role of Grace. Right, and she pretty much did this and almost nothing else. So, but we get into Iron Horse's um, backstory that he was told to suppress his Native American background and not talk about it and be shameful of it which he always found disappointing until he was an adult and he embraced it a lot more. And, you and think that's a very common experience. Right. And do you think about his last name, too, Iron Horse? That sounds Native American. Yes, even though it also means train. Is that bad? I don't know. <laughs> no, it's not bad. <laughs> but when you think about, like, the Native American names they give to characters and stuff, you know, such as um, sitting, you know, a Standing Bear, uh, Red, Red Hawk, Iron Horse... Mm-hmm. Things like that. Um, so, this episode is actually opens with a grave robbing. Correct. Who plays the grave robber? Because he's different than the professor later on that's kind of a jackass. Hello? I oh, that's sorry. played by Joseph Ziegler. Okay. Um... He's just, like, in the beginning of this episode, and then we don't see him again. Um, but while he's doing this, later on, uh, on the other side of the compound is where the Native American little um, ceremony is going on. And then he sells the artifact to the professor, and it seems like everyone wants it. The aliens want it, and Black Horse wants it, and Iron Horse wants it, and the Native Americans want it, and he just doesn't want to give it up because he bought it legally from a thief. And this is wrong, and he should give it back. Now, I don't know if there's actually a department, a Bureau of Native American Affairs. Is that something that exists? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, is actually in existence. Okay. Do they still call it Indian, though, or do they call it Native American? You know, I'd have to look it up. My mom actually works for a Native American uh, reservation clinic, so I sometimes come across the terms that I hear Occasionally, but I'd have to look it up to see if the name has switched. And the term we use today is Native American, right? Because Indian is now referred to people from India. Uh, Native American or indigenous. Indigenous, okay. Um, the uh, So he's not a chief either, which he corrects. He goes, no, I'm not a chief. I'm a shaman. And I want to know if, like, do we know anything about, like, you know, I'm jumping way ahead, but do we know anything about like the lore and everything he's saying and the ceremony he performs? Is that all real? Is that all based on something correct, or did they make it up for the show? Do you think they consulted him and said, "Hey, what do you?" I mean, we know the history, the backstory of this show is not fantastic, but do you think they? Uh... Well, from what I could tell, uh, there wasn't much ceremony involved. Uh, rattle shaking happens in a lot of ceremonies. It's a way to keep pace, keep time, and to kind of 
shake up the, the spirits and, and get them active. So it's involved in a lot of things. His specific intonations I couldn't place as anything specific. Um, not that I'm an expert in, in uh, Indian ceremonies. I've had uh, some practice, but I'm certainly not an expert. I believe that what they did on the show is made up for the show. Okay, interesting. Cer- certainly with powers far beyond anything that I've ever seen. Mm, definitely. Um, so the mask has a crystal attached to it. It's not important that the mask is Native American heritage. It's the fact that the crystal attached to it is connected to a 1,500-year-old downed alien spacecraft. Yeah, yeah. So so that spacecraft has been buried in some form for hundreds of years. And uh, when the aliens see it, they're saying it's an early model. <laughs> yes, and by early model, we mean uh, the way H.G. Wells actually wrote the alien spacecraft to be, you know, tripod-ish. Yeah, with the little tripod legs that comes out of it, etc. Definitely. Uh, which was my favorite part of the whole episode when we get there. Um, so the the thing that was kind of more curious, though, about this episode is the headdress itself. You know, as we know from the movie The Mask, you don't put on uh, masks that you are <laughs> unfamiliar with, but he puts it on his head and he starts hearing Native American drum ceremonies. And that's never really stated as to why one would think about uh, one would hear Native American chanting and drumming by putting on this headdress. And it's not really addressed when they pop out the crystal and just leave the mask. That that was one of those loose ends of of the episode that I was just like, but why did it start saying Native American music when it's an alien product? If it controls alien ships, shouldn't it sound differently? Mm. I, I don't know. What do you think of the relationship between Iron Horse and Grace? Which unfortunately, oh, that was cute. unfortunately, that was it unfortunately ends with her him. The last we get of it is when uh, the ship is rising up, and he tells her, uh, "You should get away." And she's like, "No, I'm going to stay here." And then that's it. We don't get a resolution to their little eyeing each other and attractiveness. When he sees her for the first time, the music swells and it's romantic, and you can clearly tell there's an attraction between them. And she's interested in him because he's a strong military person, and you know he's very gruff and like hard and cold, and he has to be because he's a colonel and he's dealing with aliens, and you know he's a military man. So he's going to be written as the stereotypical, I have no feelings, emotions, bottled up inside me military guy. Whereas she is like a person of the land. She's a person of the people. You know what I mean? She's kind and she's sweet. She's a school teacher. She's a school teacher. She works with children. You know what I mean? And she's very, she's, you know, she's very attractive. So they're, they're, they're very different, but there's clearly an attraction here. It goes nowhere. And I absolutely freaking hate that. They built this up for it to just end with the last thing he says, they say to each other is, you go away. No, I need to stay. Okay. Well, How about we end with the two of them kissing and it fades to the credits? That would have been a great ending, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you give us the romance, but there's no payoff. The payoff at the end of the episode is Susan and Blackwood looking at the, crystal, the fake crystal they get from the shaman because he gives them the fake one. It's so dumb. I do love the exchange between Blackwood, uh, Black, uh, damn it, um, Blackwood and Iron Horse when he tells them to be nicer. Smile. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then Blackwood like gives the uh, the 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 professor like an ultimatum, but ends it with please. <laughs> like there's a pause before he says please. Like oh yeah, that's right. We just had to talk about me being nice, <laughs> getting what I want. Well, you know, if this show had better writing on it, and the plot lines kind of continued uh, into future episodes. I would have loved to see these characters come back so Iron Horse could uh could could basically develop this relationship. We could find more about what's really powering the shaman's abilities and if if it's a trace of alien DNA or something. You're like I I would have loved to dive into that, but I doubt that we're going to get another episode with these characters. Yeah, it's a very unfortunate. Um it is interesting to see, like, a new ship, you know, and they're, like... And then, of course, like, I'm thinking of, like, Thor, the god of thunder, with the lightning and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Calls the lightning down, and the spirits are there and present. And, you know, my spirits are more powerful than you. Definitely, yeah, they, uh, my, my spirits are more powerful than you, um... My spirits are stronger than your power. But my spirits are stronger than your alien invasion of Earth. You know, my spirits live on this planet. You're an, you're a visitor to this planet. You know, and and uh, we're not going to take that. So that was kind of cool. You know, they they definitely need more stuff like that. But then they would just have every episode of like calling on the shaman to summon the lightning, like Thor, to stop the aliens. It, that wouldn't be any. <laughs> that that's when you write overly powerful when you have a villain that is um with unstoppable technology that you're not used to your your heroes have to come up with new ways every week to stop the bad guy from doing what they're trying to do with their limited resources which is fine but when you have a character that's like thor which is what the shaman is that is near next to impossible to defeat every five minutes it takes away from the conflict of the episode. This is what people have problems with characters like Superman, Thor, and Captain Marvel. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And this show, as I continue to watch it, it seems to me to be a little like watching Pinky and the Brain. Every week, the aliens try to do a new thing to take over the world. And it always fails. Yeah, definitely. You didn't laugh. I thought you'd laugh at that. <laughs> no, 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 I got it. I, 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 I guess so. Um, that's more played for laughs, though. So you know they're always going to be defeated, except for that one time that it was like a movie where Brain finally took over the world or something. Did you watch the new Animaniacs, by the way? I love it. Ah, oh, I only watched a little bit. I want to watch the whole thing, but I do love the fact that they address like all of the years that they've been away and stuff so perfectly, you know. And they they made their yeah. jokes where they needed to about Trump or something, which is fine. They didn't overly do it. Um, I'm looking forward to see what happens next. But it is rather interesting. That show is on Hulu, which is owned by Disney, and that's a Warner Brothers show. Very strange. It's just hilarious. I wish they'd bring back more side characters, though. Yes. Um, we'll we'll have to see if they do when they do it. They're definitely going to do a second season, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, have you watched any of the French War of the Worlds yet? I think they're in, they did a second season. I haven't yet because that's on my agenda to do after a lot of the other uh, book-related HQL stuff. Okay. Um, it's on the to-do list. Hold on one second. Um, 
Yeah, and just like we're also going to get to the uh, Tom Cruise movie and talk about that as well. Because I, I like that yep. movie. Um, yeah, and if, eventually. We'll all get around to it. Yeah. Um, I gave that movie a second chance recently, and I'm, I'm glad I did. It was after watching someone's retrospective review on YouTube about it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give that movie a second chance. And I'm glad I did, because I actually now appreciate that movie a little bit more. Tom Cruise does take does, – does, <sighs> Casting something like Tom Cruise in a movie like that does take you away from the movie, I think, sometimes. But I can overlook it. Yeah, he is like the he is like the penultimate action star these days. Right, but he's also such a huge star that when you cast him in a movie like that, it's not like when you watch Thor or Captain America. You know, you don't really know Chris Evans if you're not a big fan of the Fantastic Four or seen other things he's in. You don't know who he is. You don't know who you didn't know who Chris Helmsworth was when he cast as Thor. You know what I mean? Those didn't take you away as much as like Robert Downey Jr. had such a bad reputation prior to Iron Man that you didn't care that he was cast. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. Tom Cruise or whatever, despite anything he does, you watch War of the Worlds and you're just you're taken out of it too much, I think. That's just the way I feel. That's all the notes I have here for this episode of the Dead TV Podcast. It was okay. I just again I'm not a big fan of the way it ends, so but uh these two episodes were okay and I did like the return of Alien Spaceship, so you know what I mean? They make that whoa, 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 whoa. you know, they didn't they didn't kill anybody though, that which is thank God. Because <laughs> I didn't want to see any of the characters that I kinda grew to like through the episode die from an alien death ray. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh but uh once again, new aliens just kill right off. <laughs> they keep killing their own. Oh yeah, the the advocates are uh well just wait. We we got stuff coming up with them, so don't worry. <laughs> Hey, Advocate, what are we going to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Advocate. Try to take over the world. Who was Connie in the episode? Was that one of the aliens? Uh, I think so. Okay, because uh, she's on IMDb and just wanted to make sure. Um, she's played by uh, Linda Gorenson. She's still alive with us today, supposedly. Been in stuff, never seen. Uh, she was on an episode of Hemlock Grove. She played Magdalena. Um, I think that's the only thing I've seen her in uh, that's on this. But her career goes back to the 60s. And then I wanted to see who the lawyer was. And then there's Detective Bob, who I think it was the jackass detective at the thing. Um, also, no, nothing that I have ever seen uh, in. But he was in... Uh, he's in six episodes of War of the Worlds. He must be playing different characters. Unless he's the same lawyer throughout. Huh. Interesting. The lawyer played by George Bloomfield? Yeah, he's in six episodes of the show, and a couple of them we already covered, because he's, yeah. The Legend of the Least Leaf, The Night of the Covered Sun, The Bell Ringers of Aragon, The Secret of the Siren Song. Um, oops, sorry, wrong reading. I'm sorry. So shall we reap, vengeance is mine, unto us a child is born, he feedeth among the lilies, in dust to dust, and a couple others. Uh, he was in Goliath is my name, and dust to dust that we've done so far. Yeah. Uh, Maybe he's a, just always plays cops. Oh, interesting. Again, that's all the notes I have here for the Dead TV podcast coverage of War of the Worlds. Check us out on Facebook and on Twitter at Christy SAV and at Elegantly Kinky. And you can also send us an email, thatradiohorror at gmail.com. And if you would like to check out the previous episodes we've covered of this show or any of the other shows we've covered, like Friday the 13th or Constantine, go to RadioHorror.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, type in the Dead TV Podcast. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another exciting episode covering two more episodes of War of the Worlds, the series. Good night.